You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal and I'm an associate professor of political science, Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, joining us today on the show is someone who, for listeners of City of Man, should need no introduction. Uh, one of our most regular guests, possibly our most regular guest, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'd have to go back and check. Uh, we had a lot of country music episodes, so you you may be, uh, uh, may be out- outnumbered by that. But uh, certainly regular uh, Professor Paul Miller. Uh, Dr. Miller is a professor uh, of practice in international affairs uh, at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, uh, also the co-chair of the Global Politics and uh, Security Concentration. I assume that's also at Georgetown? Yep. Yeah. Uh, lives in Washington, D.C., is that right? Or are you out in the burbs now? We're in the burbs, uh, living in, uh, in Springfield, Alexandria area, right. uh, raising my three kids. Uh, th- thanks for having me on the show. Good to see you again, Coyle. Uh, thanks. Appreciate oh. the chance to talk about my book. And I should I should also point out that uh, in addition to having been on City of Man podcast several times, uh, Dr. Miller has far more tw- followers on Twitter than Donald Trump. So, uh, <laughs> well, literally everybody on Twitter has more Twitter followers <laughs> than Donald Trump. Yes, but you yeah. you got to hold that up as a badge of honor. There you go. Um, um, yeah. So good 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 to talk to you again. Yeah, uh, and today we're we're specifically talking about uh, nationalism. Uh, uh, you have a book out called The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism, uh, by you, uh, written uh, with a foreword by David French. And I, I think I told this to Andrew Walker when he was on. He had a book come out with a foreword by Robert George. Uh, you, you made sort of the uh, the classic mistake there, uh, where you had the foreword written by a better writer than you are. Uh, so I, I, I and I, that, that is not saying you are a bad writer. I think you're a good writer, but David French is better. So by the end of the foreword, I was like, well, I wish I were just reading his book now. Uh, and and then uh, then I got into your stuff and it was fine. But uh, well, we were joking about that last night. I was talking with David on uh, the Dispatch Live, and uh, that that very joke came up about how his uh, forward was very kind. I, I liked enjoyed and was humbled by his words. And uh, of course, I thought the forward overshadowed the book itself. <laughs> so you you point out in the book uh, that there's there's not really a, a set definition of nationalism. Uh, and I think that's you know reasonable. We're a nation of 330 million people with however many regional cultures and, and without an all-powerful central government. Uh, so yeah, of course, nationalism isn't going to be one thing. But let's, let's ask the question anyway, uh, what is nationalism? Right. So one thing I tried to do for the book was to um, make it scholarly. So I looked at all the, all the kind of scholarly explore, explorations into nationalism around the world over the past couple centuries to figure out what nationalism was broadly, uh, not just this particular phenomenon of American Christian nationalism. And what emerged from that is that nationalism generally begins with a belief that you can map the world's cultures kind of like a big checkerboard, right? The nationalist looks out on the world and sees a checkerboard of culture with very clear, easily demarcated boundary lines between them. Right. It's very separate, discrete squares on that checkerboard. This square over here is the essence of 
what it means to be French. And then that square over there is the essence of what it means to be German. And once they've drawn that map, that checkerboard, they simply say every square gets its own government. And every government has the responsibility to protect its own square, including protecting the, the essence of what makes it itself. So the French government has to safeguard not just French territory, but French identity. And, and the same for the German government and the American government and so forth. That's a nationalist take on what governments are for and how political and cultural boundaries are supposed to overlap. And so and once you take that as a... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, there, there's obviously some truth to that, right? I mean, the, the nations exist. Uh, they have borders. They have, you know, borders that ought to be maintained. And there's some kind of connection between those political entities and culture. Uh, if you want me to dive right into critique, yeah, I'll look, so my, my, my beef with that is that the borders between cultures are actually really blurry. And they, they're very fuzzy and they overlap. There is no one single thing that is Frenchness. There's actually a kind of a vague blob of Frenchness. And you could say that, you know, the center of Frenchness might be in Paris and, and the kind of elite, uh, literate culture around that. But when you literally, when you walk to the physical borderlands between France and Germany, the culture there is a blend. And in Alsace, it is a blend of, you can see German influences in the language and the architecture and so forth, but it is still today part of French territory. And so the inclusion of a place like Alsace in France instead of Germany is not because it conforms to the essence of Frenchness. It's actually a bunch of historical accidents that just kind of lumped it into France. I'm using that as an example, but it's true literally everywhere in the world. Cultures are blurry. The boundary lines between them overlap. And so that means that culture is a really bad foundation for hard, clear, semi-permanent political boundaries. That's one problem with nationalism, is you just can't draw the map that way. And every time you try to force the map to align, you're going to have to sit down and draw those lines, those very clear, hard lines, and uh, make decisions about who's on which side of the border, and you end up always being a little bit coercive, a little bit illiberal in how you draw those lines and what you then force people to do. You on this side of the line, you have to conform yourself to this cultural template, but by accident, you over here fall on that side of the line, and so culturally you have to belong to that people over there. Um, that's the byproduct of what you do, what happens when, when, you, when you adopt a nationalist idea towards government. Of course, nations exist, cultures exist, but I simply don't believe that you can force a culture and the state to overlap exactly. That's the hardcore of nationalism, and I think it's impractical and illiberal. So, so certainly exact overlap, and yeah, I, I don't deny that cultures can be fuzzy, especially around the, the peripheries, right? Uh, you, you start getting on the border of two different nations, especially the nations that have fundamentally different cultures or, or even just a little bit different cultures. You know, maybe the United States and Canada, all right, well, our, our cultures are pretty close to the same. Uh, we, we, there are some differences, uh, hockey versus football or what have you. But I, I guess I, I want to I hang up on this for, for a second at least, because culture would still seem to be an indispensable component of, of a nation. Uh, if you were to take, say, Chinese-style communist politics and try to apply it to America... Right now, uh, aside from all you know, Trumpian hand-wringing over, over the future of what progressivism is doing, uh, if you were to try that, it, it's not going to work. And, and it's not going to work because Americans are, cult, are, are 
have a culture that says we don't do government like that. Uh, just as if you were to try to take, uh, say, British-style monarchy, where you know no political power at all, uh, but apply even just the the, uh, uh, the the statesmanship side of it, and say, hey, when when the queen comes into the room, all of us are going to stand up, uh, and none of us are allowed to get up and leave until she leaves, uh, no matter how badly you have to go to the bathroom or whatever. Right? Uh, again, that's that's not going to work with Americans because our our culture has been teaching us and has been telling us for 200 years we don't do monarchy, we don't do all powerful government, we don't do whatever these other things are. So, I, I mean, am I am I wrong on that or or, or is there something else that binds us together as a nation if it's not the culture that's at least to some broad extent uh, defining the, the politics of the country? Yeah, so I think the argument you're making, the, the, what nationalists often argue is that we need cultural solidarity uh, and cohesion. Um, broadly understood, really right. broadly understood. And, and specifically, in order to be governable as one polity, there has to be a kind of some degree of cultural sameness. Um, I can uh, agree that uh, cultural sameness does make it easier. That's a true statement. But does that mean we're obligated to make ourselves more easily governed for the convenience of the government? I don't think I like that idea. I don't think there's any obligation on citizens to conform to cultural sameness so that the government can govern them more easily. I really don't like that, um, what that implies about the balance of rights between the state and the citizens. Does that make sense? Well, I'm saying flip that around, though. The government is actually obligated to align itself, uh, at least to some extent, to the, the culture of the citizens, right? That the government is bound by the 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 uh, uh, the nature of the culture it's trying to govern. And uh, I'm sure I've used this example in, on City of Man in the past. Uh, I'm thinking about, like, my small rural community that during COVID never bothered to put in place a mask mandate, not because the, the governing powers didn't think it was a good idea, but because the culture of our, you know, red state America, it just, it wasn't going to work. Uh, you would basically be passing a law that was unenforceable. Uh, and I, I think that that sort of conformity to the culture was the right call. Uh, I think trying to enforce that would have been, yeah. uh, and that's a small scale nationalism, but same, same sort of principle there. Yeah. So I think uh, what you're saying is that there ought to be some kind of fit between governed and, and government loosely so, understood right loosely understood and i okay I, I think i can agree with that but if there's a mismatch the one who has to adapt is the government not the yep. government yes and what nationalism says is no actually the government needs to use its powers to kind of coercively force the citizenry to adapt to the preferred cultural model of the nationalist government and that's where i have a problem with nationalism right okay uh yeah, that was it. Was something I was thinking. I mean, I, I generally agree with what you're saying in the book, but I was as I was going yeah. through, I was like, ah, you know, there, there's this cultural thing that still has to be accounted for, though. Yeah, yeah. So, so you understand that it's not so much the existence of the of the culture as it is the role of the government in either engineering culture or adapting itself to the culture. And the other thing I'd add here is, it's really important that the government recognize the validity of subcultures and cultural minorities and dissidents which is, again, why it's important that the government adapt itself, not try to force the culture to adapt itself to the, to the government. The big problem with nationalism is that by holding up one single template of culture for the whole nation, for the whole for everybody, it's always treating cultural minorities and dissidents as second-class citizens. It's kind of an inhospitable way of understanding citizenship. You're a real citizen. You know what they say in red state America. We're the real Americans. Right. Well, 
scratch that a little bit. What are you actually saying about non-red state Americans, coastal elites, minorities? You know, are they actually less than real Americans? No, they're not. And it's really actually wrong, inhospitable, uncharitable, unloving to say so. Uh, that was, a, and, and maybe we can come back to this at the end, that was actually a criticism I had of your book. Uh, and this is the sort of criticism where I'm like, I wish it were longer. I, w- I wish you'd said more. <laughs> uh, you, you don't talk about citizenship. Uh, uh, mm. there's, there's not a discussion of, well, what is, what is the proper view of uh, citizenship in this context of nationalism sort of rightly understood? Right? If we're not going to go the, the route that, that the nationalists are criticizing are, what are we going to do? And it would seem to be a, a better view of citizenship is the answer. Uh, and you just you don't you don't tackle that. Yeah, not by that, not with that language. What I what I try to do in the last chapter is, you know, ask and answer the question, what then? How do we understand the nation? Um, and you, I, I think I sort of dance around the issue of citizenship, but um, instead talk about the creed and history as the kind of foundation of our of our national sense of oneness. You know? Yeah, and I'll I'll have some questions about that too. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, certainly as Baptists, we have an interesting relationship with creed uh, historically. Uh, um, anything else that you want to bring up on the, the definition of nationalism? Otherwise, I want to get into Christians and nationalism. Uh, yeah, right. So they did the checkerboard uh, and then the kind of the problems with it. It's inherently illiberal. Um, you know, that takes us through like chapter two uh, and yeah. a little bit of chapter four. Uh, there's a lot more to say, but it, it, that's when I get, we get into Christian nationalism. So, yeah, we can move on to talk about Christian nationalism. Yeah, so... Uh, well, again, let's let's start with the what is what is Christian nationalism, and then uh, I think there were it was interesting there were some people who weren't included that are in in my mind kind of big names on the Christian nationalist side that I'd I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say about them. But let's start with the, the the bigger question: what is Christian nationalism? What what do we bring to the table uh, as yeah. believers when we become nationalists? So this book is uh, I I should have said American Christian nationalism. Um, there are versions of Christian nationalism all over the world, but this book is solidly about uh, America and the American experiment. When an American nationalist uh, looks at the checkerboard and looks at the square called America, they ask the question, what does it mean to be an American? And a nationalist will say it has to do with our culture, with our Christian heritage, or maybe our Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, our Christian values, uh, our Christian history, we are a Christian people. We are a Christian nation. That's the kind of language you tend to hear from Christian nationalists. And I would disagree and say uh, that what it means to be an American has to do with the American creed and also with the story of living up to that creed. And, and that it's not at all to deny the reality of Christianity in American history. I, I agree with all that. It's absolutely true that a supermajority have always been professing Christians Christianity was influential at the time of the founding and for a century and a half afterwards. Uh, but I'm but I'm saying, what does it mean to be an American? Uh, it's okay to not be a Christian and you're still fully an American. It's okay even to not share a, a Christian culture and still be fully an American. Um, and I don't think the government has a role in sustaining a Christian predominance in the public square. Okay, so what is Christian nationalism? It's the belief that... A, American identity is defined by reference to Christian values, heritage, culture, and so forth. Yeah, so I'm uh, working my way through uh, Abraham Kuyper's Common Grace, uh, which uh, he he would say, look, uh, the the Christian culture is not to say that 
everyone who lives in a culture is a Christian. It is to say that they are shaped by the, the doctrines, by the creed, I guess if we want to use that. They are, they are people who are formed uh, according to Christian ideas that have become entrenched in the culture, uh, which maybe we're just going back to that, that culture versus nationalism question. Uh, but it, it, it would seem to be, uh, again, important if, if what we value are the ideas that hold us all together, uh, if what we, we value is the, uh, the the creed, as you as you eventually come to in the book, uh, how do we get around needing a culture that shapes us and primes us to receive and to believe that creed and those values? Uh, I th- I'm going to make sure I understand your question right. We have a culture, like we have culture. That's that, that's neither good nor bad. It just simply sure. is. Uh, I, I don't know that it's the national government's role to tell us what that culture ought to be. You know, you've raised the question, don't we need a culture that is hospitable to the tenets of the American creed of liberty and equality? Yeah, but tell me which one isn't. Because as I observe the um, the development of classical liberal ideas and institutions over the past two and a half centuries, it seems to work pretty well kind of everywhere, um, almost everywhere. And I've got a whole chapter, a section of chapter four, where I kind of review how uh, democracy or republicanism or whatever you call it actually does work and it has worked. And there are examples of it in essentially every major cultural block in the world, which leads me to believe that America can and will continue to be democratic, even if it is less culturally Christian, even less culturally European. It can still be democratic. You know, we have lots and lots of Hispanic immigration. Well, guess what? Almost all of Latin America is a democracy, except for Venezuela and Cuba. Um, and, and, the, and the immigrants coming here are coming here because they like American opportunity, prosperity, and democracy. They're not going to like make it their project to destroy it. Right? So there's no tension between Hispanic culture and, uh, and democracy. Um, and if that's true, then you know, we can relax a little bit uh, about immigration, among other things. Uh, we can remain democratic and remain true to the American creed even as our culture changes. Yeah, and so when when I uh, when I hear Christian nationalism, and maybe this will just show you that I'm not I'm not reading stuff that's been written in the last five years. I'm I'm still 30 years behind, largely because of where I live in the country. Every everything in my region of the, the nation is 30 years. Reagan is still president here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when I th- when I hear Christian nationalism, I think names like Rush Dooney. Uh, I think uh, theonomy. Uh, I think let's. Uh, Let's take the Old Testament laws and, and make those the laws of the land. Uh, I, I don't remember reading anything about that in your book. Is is that just now discredited and no one does? That's just those weirdos out in Idaho who do that, or is that, right. or is that underpinning the stuff that you're reading? And I'm just I'm behind the times. So I made a decision in this book to focus on um, cultural nationalism um, rather than racial or theocratic nationalism. Right. There's a relationship. There's a there's a complicated relationship between Christian nationalism and white nationalism, sure. between Christian nationalism and uh, the, the um, theonomists and dominionists that you referenced. But I made a decision to focus more on the cultural nationalists because that's the more popular kind. And it's it's a more powerful argument. And I think you hear it from a lot of people in, you know, scholarly and respectable circles. And I wanted to respond to that. Uh, you know, um, uh, I feel like that's a conversation where we haven't had the response. I, I read so many books from uh, folks on the left who were worried about stuff on the right 
but they focused on the fringes. They focused on the theocrats, the totalitarians, the, the, you know, virtually the terrorists. And I thought uh, that's not actually the conversation I wanted to participate in. There's a more sane movement that still needed a correction and rebuke, and that's what I wrote the book about. Yeah, I uh, I know every every couple of years, kind of the the mainstream left culture rediscovers uh, dominionists and theonomists yeah. and yeah. writes a panic piece in the Washington Post about them. Uh, and I mean, I I could count on one hand the number of times I've heard anyone from that movement mentioned in church at all. Yeah, yeah. And then it was and probably critical in order to critique them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe with the exception of, of Francis Schaeffer, who was kind of adjacent to the, adjacent to that towards the end of his life. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, see, I think that probably covers your your Christian nationalism chapter, uh, and your nationalism in the Bible chapter. Uh, you, you do go a little bit into your critique of, of the left uh, when you start talking identity politics. Although, again, that's not the, the main point of the book. Uh, you're, you're really engaging with identity politics uh, as it manifests on the right. Uh, so where, where does identity politics, where, where, where does that fit into our thinking about nationalism? Yeah, so um, the way I put it in the book is that uh, nationalism is the identity politics of uh, white evangelicals, right? Um, or to put it more broadly, take it out of the American context, nationalism is the identity politics of the majority tribe, um, and identity politics is the ethnic nationalism of minority groups, right? So it's both. It's basically the same phenomenon. And I'm, by the way, I'm pulling this from Francis Fukuyama's great book called Identity. Uh, it's like the politics of resentment and something, something. Um, really good book. And he argues that uh, the demand for recognition underlies quite a lot of modern politics. When majority tribes demand recognition, we call it nationalism. When minority groups demand recognition, we call it identity politics. When Muslims do it, we call it Islamism or, 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 or jihadism or something. Um, and uh, when, when a class-based group, when the, when the poor do it, we call it Marxism, right? <laughs> um, so there's all these things that kind of come from that underlying desire for uh, recognition. I think it's a helpful way of thinking through some of this stuff. Uh, the error of nationalism is when the majority tribe, in our, in the American case, it's white Christians, think that they are not a part, but they are actually the whole of the nation. And they think the entire nation should reflect themselves, their identity, their values, uh, themselves. Um, and so the whole nation should essentially look like them. Uh, and, you know, I think that we, I'm saying we now, we white Christians, need to recognize that we are culturally particular not culturally universalist. Uh, that would help uh, solve a lot of these problems. Um, there is a, well, yeah, let me stop there. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, keep, keep, don't stop. Keep going. I was going to say that there's, there's kind of a, a presumption, a, presum, presumptu, a presumption, presumptuousness, um, even a kind of a, maybe I'll call it political arrogance, when the majority tribe goes into the public square and says, we define the nation and therefore the nation to reflect us. Kind of a, almost a chauvinism, which is why the left looks at it and says, oh, that's racism. I want to be real careful about this. I, I feel like I need to write an article called, is Christian nationalism racist? Because this is a very tricky argument. Some, some of them are. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Some, some are. Definitionally, I would say it, it doesn't have to be. There's no necessary linkage between Christian nationalism and racism. And, and I want to acknowledge people's kind of good faith and good conscience on this. However, because it's a matter of identity politics for white evangelicals, 
What that means is that a white evangelical or white Christian will go to the public square and say the whole country should essentially conform to my uh, values. They have a certain image of what America is. And it makes them, I think it makes us, uh, puts on cognitive blinders. So we tend not to see problems in communities, uh, in minority communities, in you know, other communities. When you have something like the reality of uh, intergenerational inherited racial inequality, uh, what some people call systemic racism, when you have that reality, you know, that's a real thing. It's a real problem. But if you think of America as a Christian nation and you're focused on making America conform to your cultural template and you're, that, that's kind of where your eyes are, you're going to tend to not see the reality of inherited racial inequalities. Um, and so these two things actually go together. America can be a Christian nation and still tolerate inherited racial inequalities. Uh, and, and, the, and the nationalist sees no problem with that. And they don't think that the government ought to play any solution in it. And that's why nationalism looks at least very insensitive to the agenda of ethnic minorities. Again, the, the, the left is less patient and says, you're just racist. Try to back up and say, I don't think it's racist. It is maybe insensitive to the agenda of a, a minority group because of what uh, where your kind of cognitive priorities are. How, how much of this, your, your criticism here, both in the, the bigger sense and then in the specific sense, is because of where we're at in time? So say we, we take a time machine back you know, 15 years. Uh, wait, yeah, 15 years. So you know, George W. Bush is still president. Uh, and uh, we, we say, all right, now some white evangelical stands up and says, hey, I think my politics should be the politics of the nation. I assume uh, that what we would hear there is, well, kind of classical liberalism, right? Uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, free markets, uh, maybe a little bit of militarism abroad, uh, but, but by and large, at home, big government off our backs. Uh, fast forward to 2016, now all of a sudden the white evangelical is saying, I want uh, national politics to look like my politics, uh, and that means building the wall, that means protectionism, that means uh, using the powers of the national government to own the libs. Would, would the criticism that you're making apply equally in both of those circumstances? Uh, is, is maybe one of those circumstances being blind? Did, did evangelicalism change that much? Uh, what, how do we think through this, this difference? Well, I'll give you two responses. One is that um, it's a little bit not, it's not so much I want the politics of the nation to be my politics as I want the identity of the nation to be my identity. Um, it, so it's not about the particulars of the defense budget. It's about uh, who we are as a people and what story we tell about ourselves. And if the story is the story of white evangelicals and what heroes we've been, you're leaving out of the story a lot of people who actually are Americans. And that's where that kind of insensitivity comes in. The second answer I'd give you is, you know, let's not rewind the clock just 15 years. Let's rewind it 50, 60, 80 years, 100 years. American nationalism was overtly and virulently racist. Uh, and there's just no, you know, go, right. go read a book written back then by anybody. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a merging of kind of racial and cultural nationalism. Post-civil rights, nationalists have learned how to um, no longer talk about race. And it is a more tolerant movement, absolutely. But I feel like there is a inherited presuppositions about who we are as Americans. And it was inherited from a racist past. And I think that perhaps many uh, folks on the right need to um, uh, 
how do I put this, um, have not recognized where they have inherited their prevailing presuppositions from and what unintended consequences they have. Is that vague enough for you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I think it's, uh, this is not from the religious side of things, but more from the, the talk radio side of things. Uh, at least based on my, my listening intently during the 90s, uh, the narrative was, was very, you know, the identity was, we are a nation, our, our national story is moving from oppression slash slavery slash whatever towards greater freedom. I mean, that was that was the message I heard over and over and over, regardless of who it was that I was listening to at the time, right? Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, uh, Mike Reagan, I mean, whoever was on the radio in the 90s, they were all kind of saying the same thing. Not, uh, not, Pat, not Pat Buchanan. Uh, not on the radio, uh, at least not on not on the one station we got out in Montana. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but there there didn't seem to be the the reflection that I, I think I think that was genuine. I think they they actually meant that, and I think the people listening were like, yes, this is this is the the arc of American history. You you see this moving from slavery towards freedom, and that that circle of who is included then in that. Uh, always expanding, right? So it didn't include African Americans in, until it did, and it it didn't include you know uh, immigrants uh, from wherever until it did. Uh, the the problem being that they didn't realize that as that greater freedom comes along, eventually it won't just be us telling that story. Eventually, the the power is going to go to others, and not really thinking through what does that mean in a practical sense? What is that going to look like when now everybody has a platform and it's not just one person? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. And I think a good example there would be um, the 1619 Project, which is right. a great example of uh, an alternate story of America by... Uh, Fan not- fiction, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Um, and let's, yeah, let me say up front, by invoking 1619, I'm not at all defending it. I'm just saying this is an example of an alternate narrative. Um, and and by, by, by the progressive left, by uh, not, by kind of the opposite of the American nationalists. Um, although I want to say, if you read the original essay by Nicole Hannah-Jones, it's actually a manifesto of black patriotism. <laughs> it's actually really, I mean, I kind of like that original essay, the broader project, which commissions dozens of essays, you know, we know it has some problems and there's some factual errors and all that. But I like the animating impulse of saying, look, we are Americans, all of us, white and black together. And black people help build this country. That's, that's actually a fantastic message. It's actually deeply yeah. conservative. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was super frustrated by that. Uh, not as frustrated as I was by the response in the 1776 business. Oh but uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had I had one of the guys who helped write that on the show. Not about that. I didn't realize he'd helped write that. Uh, I may not have uh, if I'd known that honestly. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was somewhat frustrating because I thought this sixteen nineteen thing is a real chance uh, to reach out kind of and and join up with stuff that uh, white evangelicals especially uh, were were saying ten years ago just to say hey look this is this is us too. Uh, it was not done that way. It, it was not it was not written to and, and not that it should have been written for us white evangelicals, uh, but it, it could have been used that way and instead it it was used for other reasons. Are you, are you referring here to, are you, so let me ask you this. Are you, do you, by that, do you mean that you found the tone of the 1619 project to be unnecessarily polemical and therefore a missed opportunity for real dialogue? No. Well, I mean, maybe I, I, 
I'm not entirely sure. I got to read the original thing before they edited it, so mm. I I know there were some some changes made. Uh, I mean more in the way it was used culturally, the, the way it became a, uh, a sort of litmus yeah. test. So do you yeah. do you embrace this and do you celebrate this or do you uh, oppose this and do you are you on the side of racism or whatever? Yeah, yeah, no, got you. Okay. Yeah, uh, it was it was interesting. I read uh, uh, from my my predecessor here at Southwest Baptist University, left behind a bunch of uh, just terrible, terrible like America's a Christian nation books, uh, and I, I read through some of them, never having read any of those before, and. One of them was written by DC Talk, the uh, the yeah. Christian band from back in the day. I that I, yeah, I've, I I know of them. I can't say I ever listened to them, but I, I know that they existed. Uh, and uh, it was, I mean, the the narrative was basically, I mean, it it was sixteen nineteen related. Like it was, hey, slavery. We did that. It was a terrible thing. Here here is all of the ways that we went wrong. Here are the corrective steps that have been taken. Here's the work still to be done. It wasn't the main point of the book, but I mean, it was in there. So there, there, there really was, assuming that that was somewhat typical of, of what people believed whenever that book was published, uh, there really should be room for, for collaboration there. Uh, but that's, that's getting us away from your book and into 1619. Um, where, where on earth were we in your book? Uh, oh, so uh, uh, identity, uh, identity politics, kind of our, our moment in time, how has that changed over time, I think, was where we were at. Yeah. Um, I, uh... I had wanted to address at some point, and we can do it now or later. The Go for it. the problems, um, you know, we talked about the problems with nationalism. It's impractical. It's illiberal. But what are the problems as a Christian? There's actually more problems on top of that for the church as well. So, if if now's a good time. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe give us just a little more on on kind of the the defense of Christian nationalism. Like if if either of us were Christian nationalists. Uh, and, and hopefully it doesn't sound too much like I am, because I'm, I'm basically in agreement with you on this book. I'm just trying to yeah. uh, give it the, the benefit of the doubt. So if I were a Christian nationalist, how would I be defending it right now? How would I be saying, look, read the Bible and you see Israel is a nation. Israel has discrete mm-hmm. boundaries. Uh, the church is not a nation, uh, but the church still has discrete boundaries. It, it mm-hmm. might be a model of what a nation could be. Yeah, so a Christian nationalist, we, we talked about the need for social cohesion and a common right. culture, uh, so nationalists would emphasize that. A Christian nationalist would also say we need a public morality, we need public decency, you know, down with drag queen story hour, for example. Um, we need to ban porn, uh, you know, righteousness exalts a nation. Uh, and so our common culture, which used to be Christian, also used to honor God and enforce public morality which, by the way, also leads to great national blessing and, and national strength and greatness. Um, and that's, that's I think, a collection of arguments from Christian nationalists that kind of go together. Uh, we, need, we need the common culture just to hold us together, but also it needs to be a moral Christian culture because immorality is just in, intrinsically wrong. Um, uh, and some will go further, and, then, and, and you don't hear this often today in sort of elite circles, but it was used to be very common for Christians to call America a new Israel and to pretty literally mean that God has chosen us for a special mission in the world, spreading liberty or being an example, city on the hill. Um, and still today you hear it's pretty common. And t- tell me if you saw this last week with the 4th of July, somebody somewhere invoking Second Chronicles 7.14 or Psalm 33.12, right? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord in reference to America, right? Invoking that on the 4th of July or Memorial Day, uh, Second Chronicles is the one that says, you know, if my people who are called by my name uh, turn and repent. Um, 
it's very common today to hear Christians use that in reference to America. That's classically Christian nationalist. And it's a belief, it's a religious theological belief that God will bless us, not us as Christians, not us as churchgoers, but God will bless us Americans if we, as America, turn to him and acknowledge him somehow. Back in 1863, there was a movement by Christian pastors to amend the U.S. Constitution and include a recognition of Jesus Christ in the preamble. Uh, it, it did not succeed, but the organization is still around today, believe it or not. Um, so there's still actually an effort to amend the Constitution. That's uh, that's a reality. Um, uh, and, and there are Christians who make that argument today. It, sometimes less in legal ways, more cultural ways. But uh, there, did that answer your question? Yeah. Um, so you and you you give some again. I, I I think I agree with your criticisms of it. Although I I also think of the Christian nationalists who are on the orthodox side of uh, uh, of the the spectrum, right? The the people that we would look at and say, yep, faithful believer yeah. has mistaken views of politics. Uh, I, I suspect their response would be, look, yes. We believe that America is a Christian nation, but we we when we say that we say it with a common grant, uh, common grace, sense of things, right? So you you say in your, uh, in your book, and I I have a galley copy, so I don't know if this page number lines up with, uh, uh, with what's in the final copy or not. But on one thirty, uh, you say I love the United States deeply, uh, but America has no eschatological status; it is not a chosen nation, and I. I, I agree with you if you are talking in any salvific sense, uh, but I also think when you're talking common grace, all of a sudden that that viewpoint has to shift a little bit, because America obviously does has some very uh, has done some very unique things in the world. So if you wanted to say you know America has no unique eschatological status, uh, has no uh, solitary eschatological status, I would agree with that. Uh, but man, that, that common grace stuff does does kind of affect this discussion a little bit, or at least I, I feel like it should, even if I'm not entirely sure how. Uh, so America has done a lot to establish the idea that, say, freedom and rights can be codified in law and enforced and enjoyed by the people uh, in a way that other nations haven't. Uh, other nations have done other things, and that's, that's also not to, to say other nations don't matter. They also have unique common grace things that they've done. But when you're looking at us, it seems like we do have some kind of something or other that is different and unique to us. Does that make sense? Yes, but does that mean that God chose us for that purpose? I mean, in that it happened, yes. Uh, okay. so, God is God is sovereign over history, so so yeah. Right. yeah. So in God's providence, you know, it happened, and so therefore God decreed for it to happen. Right now, does that does that turn into therefore normative for the future? Yeah. Yeah. See, and and there's and just recognize that past generations of Christian nationalists very explicitly said so. Uh, Herman Melville wrote in one of his novels about America as a quote political messiah. Um, ushering in a kind of a redemption of the world by sharing our new gospel of political freedom, which was unusual in, in the 18th century and early 19th right. century. Think about Manifest Destiny. That was a religious sense that America has a mission from God. And I'm not exaggerating here. You look at the sermon by I think it's Horace Greeley, the, uh, uh, not a sermon, there was an editorial where they talked about the hand of providence guiding right. America westward on our manifest destiny to overspread the continent, um, which was a religious 
duty that happens to also be quasi-genocidal against Native Americans. That's what can happen when you have a sense of national self-righteousness. You excuse anything for the end of national greatness. And if there are people who are standing in your way who don't fit within your definition of the nation, like Native Americans, well then they're the bad guy and whatever happens to them is justified. That's an extreme example, but I think that is the kind of dynamic that can play out for all kinds of nationalisms. So are those those attitudes about the nation, are they inherent to nationalism? Are they, are they central to nationalism? Or are they results of nationalism that uh, seem to be inescapable? Or, or is it possible to be a nationalist and, and say, yeah, I, I don't think we should go out and wipe out other people. I think other nations, if you're French, you should be nationalist about France, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're English, you should be nationalist about England, and I, I respect that, but I'm nationalist about my nation, and I'm opposed to genocide. Yeah, you know, that, that sort of thing. So uh, what I say in the book is that I think nationalism, the idea of it, the ideal type, is intrinsically illiberal at that level of ideas. And so if you really push it to its logical conclusion, you will find some form of illiberalism or oppression showing up somewhere. Now, I do acknowledge that it exists on a wide spectrum in practice, and you can have more benign forms of it, but even the benign forms still end up treating some people as second-class citizens and maybe editing them out of your national story or sort of soft forms of... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, of every, I think the word is microaggression. I can't believe I'm going to say that. But it's, it's sort of, you know, telling some people, hey, you're not really one of us because you don't conform. Okay, that could be fairly benign. Yes, it can go to the other end of the spectrum where it's far more aggressive and violent and even genocidal. Uh, we don't, I don't think, you know, that's not a problem in America today, but it has been in the past. And I think that there is the potential for more violence in the nationalist mindset. And if you look at history, if you look at other nationalisms, nationalism is infamous for for its oppression almost everywhere it's tried. Uh, eventually, sooner or later, nationalist movements end up going in that direction. It seems to be built, baked into the ideology. So, uh, in, uh, and I, I haven't finished reading this article yet, so maybe I should be wary of, of citing it. Uh, in the most recent modern age, uh, Yuval Levin has an article uh, where he uh, he argues that you're always you're by definition always going to have second class citizens because you are yeah you know, I don't think he uses that term but I mean that's basically the the idea uh, because you are always going to have people in a minority of some kind like that's just every nation is going to have that and your options are either kind of the Marxist route which is the main focus of his article uh, or to say hey yes. Whoever's in that minority, whoever those second-class citizens are, uh, we are still going to respect them. We are still going to uh, protect their rights. We are still going to, you know, recognize that they're human beings and so forth. Uh, is there something in nationalism uh, that makes you sort of turn away from that option? Is there something inherent to it that shuts that off as as a viable alternative? I think there is. Um... And I, I would maybe pose the question this way. When I'm talking to a nationalist versus talking to a not nationalist, I simply say, what's your priority? When you enter the public square, what are you trying to accomplish? And the nationalist priority is trying to enshrine the majority culture uh, for the nation. And so to them, the minority is a problem to be solved or an obstacle to be removed. 
But to a non-nationalist, the minority is a fellow citizen to love, to protect, uh, to engage with. They're not a problem or an obstacle or an annoyance. And because of that difference of perspective, uh, I think you're just inherently going to see uh, a difference in how the nationalist treats them. Uh, this and this this isn't the point main point of your book, but I'm kind of curious. Uh, in enshrining the majority perspective, I think tends to assume a lot about the majority. Uh, and kind of my impression is the people who are who are using nationalist rhetoric are talking about the majority, but the people the the culture they're talking about is not the majority. Uh, I don't know that you can have. I don't know that you can genuinely say we have a majority culture in the United States anymore. Uh, I think we're fairly evenly divided. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess probably in some technical numerical sense there's a majority, but I don't know who, who's on it. So, yeah. I mean, what what does that mean for nationalism if, if really what you're promoting is the minority? Yeah, that, it, you hit a home run with that one, Coyle. That's fantastic. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're absolutely correct. There's a, there's something about it. So nationalism almost always depends on demagogues to stand up and say, I represent you, the people, and here's who you are we are the people, we are the nation, we deserve more power, right? Um, and that means that they have to kind of give shape to the, the mob, the populist mob. Um, and it, in America, that's typically by saying, I'm appealing to you Christians with the white implied and unstated. Um, I And this is not in the book, it's probably in my next book on progressivism. I think it's probably unhelpful to talk about white Americans at all. There's so much internal diversity. I, Tell me that Italians, Italian Americans, right, are meaningfully lumped into the same category as people in Appalachia or or Los Angeles, right? It's just like that's that's a that category is so diffuse as to be meaningless. Uh, and uh, I think it might be more helpful for us to start disaggregating that into subcategories. The biggest subcategory is the Anglo-Germanic American, right? That's you know me, um, and maybe you can start making generalizations about that broad category. But there's a lot of other kind of white people that just don't. So I'm agreeing with you that I think invoking those broad categories assumes too much about their internal sameness. Well, and this is, uh, again, not not the point of your book or what we're talking about. But this is, I think, where we run into issues when we start talking about critical race theory. Uh, yeah. That's that's a tough thing for those of us who are white to think about because we don't really have a white culture, right? It's, it's not like we, we wake up in the morning and think I'm Anglo, Irish, Germanic, whatever, and that affects and defines what I do. I mean, it, it I suppose, does implicitly, but not in any way that I'm conscious of, which then the, the critical race folks would be like, well, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, they would, call that, they would call that white normativity, I think is the term right. to use, and say, like, we're implicitly assuming that whiteness is the standard, and you just right. said, like, oh, it's not. I don't think of myself as white, and that's the that's a luxury of the majority right. culture is not to think of it. And I have some sympathy there. And I sure and I, again, I'll get into this in the next book about. And I, in fact, in this book, I say we need to recognize our particularity. We, white Americans or white Christian Americans, need to recognize that there is a culture particular to us that is not shared by all Americans, and therefore we are not the whole of the nation. That does open up a can of worms and a further conversation about then who we white Christians are particularly, and I'll leave that for the next book. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, it can be a difficult and even awkward conversation, but uh, I think it's one worth having. So, and, and this is where, and again, you're, I, I emailed you about this. You're, you're free to decline it. Uh, mid 20th century political scientist named Louis Hartz writes a, a, a classic, like the classic book on, on, uh, 
uh, on American politics, uh, at least from the in the world of political science, a uh, liberal tradition in America, uh, where he says the uh, uh, the real thing that binds us all together is is not our culture, uh, it's it's the consensus, right? It's it's the implicit agreement that all of us have uh, that we don't even really have to think about. So, to go back to the, kind of the earlier part of the conversation, there's a cultural component to that. Uh, but if you stop an American on the street, and he's he's writing in the 1950s, and say, "Do you want to be communist? Right? Do you want a communist government?" We don't have to think about it. Like we don't we don't have to uh, we don't have to go through the the pros and cons of communism, uh, and and do the the uh, uh, you know double blind uh, study and run the regression analysis and all of that. Uh, we just instinctively know communism is bad, right? And and that is then reflected in our in our political system. Uh, so if we don't have a majority culture, is there a consensus of some kind that maybe maybe we could appeal to nationally? Uh, some kind of general agreement that we've got uh, that, uh, that, that we can look at and say this, this is for everyone. And yeah, there are going to be people who dissent, but they, they do kind of have to fall in line because it's what holds us all together. So in the last chapter of the book, I, I ask what does hold us together as Americans? What does define American nationhood? Uh, and I, uh, of course, think that the creed is part of the answer, right? Um, and I take that to be uh, the consensus, right? We have to have a consensus over the very broad outlines, the Constitution, the Declaration, the ideals they represent, liberty, equality for all, democracy, uh, human rights, or civil liberties, uh, mixed government, blah, 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 right? And I think that's that's absolutely true. So I would agree with the consensus to that point. I think that's I, I, I think that's not quite enough. I actually went into the book thinking I was going to write a defense of pure creedalism. Yeah, you, you don't actually give us the creed, by the way. Oh, I, 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 I have written in my book here, what is the creed? <laughs> I, 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 think, I think I summarized it in like two pages or something. It's very short in the very end. Um, uh, page, page, page 242 is where I talk about the creed uh, and, uh, you know, the ideals of the Constitution, the Declaration, as practiced in this particular land. So uh, it's super brief, but I didn't think I needed a very long explanation of it because it it is, as Hart said, it's kind of in the air. Like we kind of grow up with it. Um, uh, okay, so I thought I was going to defend pure creedalism, but I was actually kind of persuaded by some of the stuff I read, particularly by Rusty Reno, that pure creedalism isn't quite enough to make a nation, at least not a distinct nation. Because other nations also share our creed because of us. Like, we kind of helped spread it. <laughs> Isn't that great? And so what makes us Americans? Well, it's not just uh, the creed, but it's the story of the creed, right? We have lived out a particular history of striving to live up, enact, and make real this creed by overcoming major obstacles and major sins. That story is what we have lived. And when we accept that story and make it our own and accept that we are part of that story, that's what makes us Americans. And by the way, this is exactly what C.S. Lewis said and others about how to love your country. You, you, you have an attitude towards the past. You step into the story and say, this is my story. I will cultivate gratitude for what came before me. And towards the future, I will work to make it better. That's what makes you and I Americans. It, 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 we have common citizenship. Um, we live under the creed, but we also have that a dedication to the story. And I think that is an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I don't. I mean, again, I, I don't disagree. Although I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on how that is not just another way of talking about culture. Um, part of it is that we all have different social locations within that story. Sure. Uh, I think when 
maybe when, when I was growing up, the version of the story I heard was a very triumphalist story. And it was a story mostly of white Christian men doing heroic things. And by the way, that is a partly true story. I don't want to debunk that and say, oh, all of those guys were actually villains. No, they were real heroes, and I'm grateful for them. But I do recognize now that that is only part of the story. And we need to actually tell the other parts of the story. And I think that our national story requires some real contrition and lament and truth-telling uh, and, and efforts at reconciliation and justice. Um, so it's not simply a matter of replicating our, our triumphs and saying, everybody, get on the same page and worship the same heroes. That's the cultural approach. That's the nationalist approach, uh, treating history as triumphalism and as a, as a parade to celebrate. What I'm saying is let's recognize this story is the center point of our conversation. We're going to argue and bicker over that story, and that's okay. We're never going to agree on exactly its outlines, its contours, and how to interpret it. But it is a story that makes us us and that binds us together. Uh, well, one uh, one final question, and this this again may be for those those books that are coming down the road that you promise us in your forward, uh, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, uh, you, you talk a lot about uh, republicanism and uh, and the illiberalism of nationalism. I think one of the issues that you might run into is uh, that republicanism itself can be very anti uh, illiberal right it, it the the two are not synonyms they they can be at odds with each other uh and if uh if we're throwing nationalism into that mix right republicanism liberalism and nationalism uh all of a sudden that becomes a very challenging thing to sort out uh now now again if you're if you're dealing with that uh, in, in the third book in the trilogy then uh, we can we can hold off on that conversation until later Tell me how republicanism and liberalism can be at odds. Uh, well, republicanism, uh, as, as I understand it anyway, has to do with the rule of law, yeah. has to do with a, a kind of process. Yeah. Uh, you can use proper processes to take away freedoms and rights. Mm -hmm. uh, you can you can uh, you can uh, seize control of the machine uh, and put in place a Marxist regime. Uh, I mean, it's been done, you know. Uh, so, sure, illiberal democracies, you know, Athens, right? Uh, yep. the, the assembly voted to ostracize and execute people. Um, and so maybe I'm just playing a definitional word game. I guess I would include within republicanism things like checks and balances, things like divided, mixed government. Uh, so maybe sure. it's not pure republicanism that I'm vindicating. Well, um, but all of that could be all of that could be there and you could still uh, still undermine the traditional liberal order. I mean, right. uh, yeah. uh, you have republics in the Middle Ages like Florence and, and Venice and so forth that the idea of liberalism is is not even close, not anywhere on their radar. Yeah. And so maybe what I'm going to end up vindicating really is a form of liberal republicanism. Uh, I, 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 it is vague in this book uh, because sure. I'm still groping my way towards that grand solution. Um, but how long did it take Augustine to write the city of God? I mean, I, give me some time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, you'll, you'll have to put at the end of it like he does at the end of City of God. You know, there are people who think this is too short. That's right. Like, where are they? <laughs> who are these people? Uh, uh, well, I think that was. Uh, I think those were all of the questions that I had. Let me uh, make sure I didn't miss something that I scribbled in here. I still maintain you do not actually define the American creed. Uh, you give us two pages on it, but and maybe I'm maybe I'm too caught up thinking like this is going to be like the Nicene Creed where we have this text that we all agree on. Uh, and you've given us the exposition of the text, but not the text itself. Um, 
Well, because I, I, first of all, I don't want to just copy and paste, you know, the declaration. Uh, <laughs> and also, I did have a longer section, but I turned it, it turned out that I was replicating part of the preface. Um, in the preface, I kind of define, I want to defend ordered liberty, liberal institutions, civic republicanism, and then I kind of go on and explain what a lot of that is in, sure. the, in the preface. So, you know, that's that's part of it. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I did not go back and read that. Here's what I want to maybe make sure I um, address uh, before we end our conversation. You know, we talked about different problems with nationalism from kind of a political theory standpoint, but I want to make sure I say that there, I think there's real problems from a Christian standpoint. Um, as a Christian in the public square, I want to be engaged and active in politics and work for justice for everyone. I'm afraid the Christian nationalism can mislead me about what the tr- what the gospel is and about what my priorities ought to be in this world. Christian nationalism it seems to me, acts as if the point of Christianity was to resurrect Christendom. Um, and I don't think that's the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity isn't to enshrine the social dominance of the Christian tribe, which is what Christian nationalism is. The point of Christianity is to save souls for Jesus and prepare for the kingdom uh, that he is going to uh, inaugurate when he comes. We don't build the kingdom, and we will never turn America into the kingdom of God. kind of feel like Christian nationalism is sort of trying to do that. Um, turn it into some kind of Christian kingdom. And that's not the point. That's not the point of our faith. Um, when we go that route, we also start to lose our independence from the state. We allow ourselves to be manipulated by the state. We allow our religion to be turned into a kind of a handmaiden and cheerleader of the state. We we end up outsourcing some of the duties of the church to the state, allowing the state to take over and start teaching in our name what Christianity actually is. And I mean that quite literally. State employees of the U.S. government or state localities were teaching Bible classes in public schools for 150 years. And who knows what they were teaching? Is there any reason why our country is biblically illiterate when for a century and a half uh, it was out of the hands of the church to actually teach what God's truth was? Um, we need to jealously guard our prerogative as as the church to teach God's truth. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the apostles, not to Caesar. And that's a prerogative and a privilege we need to uh, safeguard. And that's why it's important for us to have some distance from the state and keep the state out of our business, because um, we have the high calling to teach God's truth, not Caesar. Well, that is a great place, I think, to to leave things. Uh, So listeners, go out and pick up The Religion of American Greatness, uh, hot off the presses from IVP, uh, published just last week, right? So uh, out and available, and I assume... uh, purchasable uh, at amazon.com and air, airport bookstores and, and so forth. I, I hope so. I did, I understand, sell out on IVP's website, but they may have restocked by now. Um, so, Coyle, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's good to talk to you as always. Yeah, it's great. Uh, thanks for taking time to do this. Yeah. Well, thank you listeners for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting christianhumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash cityofmanpodcast, or get in touch with us at cityofmanpodcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, 
the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. As I went a walk in that ribbon of highway.